Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1113, with a release and air date of Saturday, June 27, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community worldwide, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with our special Field Day 2020 edition, number 1113 of This Week in Amateur Radio. AWRL President Rick Roderick issues a special statement regarding Field Day 2020. A rescued radio amateur says that ham radio saved his life. We will have all the details. The AWRL will hold its national convention at the Orlando Hamcation in February 2020. The FCC orders the shutdown of a radio station run by a purported Chinese propaganda outlet. Registration is now available for the Radio Amateurs of Canada advanced course during the summer. A balloon, launched by a popular web show host, has started its third circumnavigation of the planet. QSO Today will host its first virtual ham expo this coming August. And have you heard of the dark sucker theory? You will, as we will tell you all about it in this week's special field day edition of This Week in Amateur Radio. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will answer that eternal question, why does my Wi-Fi suck so bad? Australia's own Arnold Benshop, VK6FLAB, asks, what if you whisper and nobody hears you? Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOY, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill talks about the radio amateur during World War II and the War Emergency Radio Service. And our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will talk about maintaining those tower guy wires. That and a whole lot more is straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in Albany, New York, I'm George W2XBS. And reporting from our news bureau just outside Albany, New York, in the Geek Cave studios, and wishing the class of 2020, including my oldest daughter, Terry Ellen, congratulations on your graduation, I'm Rich Lawrence, KB2MOB. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from our radio outpost on field day in the Catskill Mountains of upstate New York, I'm Don Hulick, K2ATJ. And reporting from our news bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where temps above 90 degrees are becoming the rule of the day, I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. Leading off our news on this special Field Day 2020 edition, AWRL President Rick Roderick, K5UR, has released a special statement regarding AWRL Field Day 2020. 
Here with the contents of that special statement is Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reporting from League Headquarters in Newington. Dear members, for the first time since the event was introduced in 1933, ARRL Field Day will indeed be significantly different this year. Continuing public safety restrictions due to COVID-19 will force many of you to operate from home, while some radio clubs, where permitted, will venture outside in limited gatherings and practicing social distancing. By all means, get on the air this weekend and show the world that amateur radio operators remain adaptable to changing conditions. Although points are awarded, the underlying purpose of Field Day is to demonstrate the versatility and reliability of radio amateurs under simulated emergency conditions. For some of you, especially new licensees, this may be the first time you've established your own home station or portable communications capability. Let's use this opportunity to show our friends, families, and community leaders that we are a trained, resourceful, and reliable corps of volunteers, especially when other forms of communications are not available. In addition to operating, please take a few minutes to document your station with photographs or even host a video conference and give virtual tours. Social media is the way most people are discovering amateur radio these days, so post your photos and videos to the social media pages hosted by your clubs and ARRL. Finally, please use the hashtag ARRLFD along with community hashtags to get the word out that we are enjoying an amazing hobby that is also a public service. Field Day is the largest gathering of communicators on the face of the earth. Let's show the world what amateur radio can do. On behalf of ARRL board members and staff, have a fun and safe ARRL field day, unquote. Alden Sumner Jones, KC1JWR of Bennington, Vermont, is thankful for amateur radio after he suffered a medical incident and lost consciousness on June 15th while hiking with others along a remote section of the Long Trail not far from his home. For more details on this story, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reporting from League Headquarters in Newington. An EMT from Appalachian Mountain Rescue who was hiking nearby saw Jones pass out but was unable to connect with 911 via his cell phone. Jones regained consciousness and was successful in contacting Ron Wonderlich, AG1W, via the Northern Berkshire Amateur Radio Club's K1FFK repeater on Mount Greylock. Wonderlich initiated what turned into an eight-hour effort to get Jones off the trail into a medical facility, acting as a relay among Jones, emergency crews, and other agencies involved. As the Bennington Post reported, quote, the Vermont State Police also received assistance from several licensed amateur radio operators, who helped facilitate communications, greatly assisting in the rescue, unquote. Matthew Sacco, KC1JPU, headed to a staging area where rescue crews were gathering. When he could not make it into the repeater, he employed some ham radio ingenuity to fashion a J-pole antenna from some window line that he had on hand. He casted it into a tree using a fishing pole and got on the air. That did the trick. An individual on site was able to obtain an accurate location for Jones using the GPS on his cell phone. After it was determined the rescuers could not reach Jones using an all-terrain vehicle, arrangements were made to have a search-and-rescue crew from New York retrieve Jones by helicopter. 
Amateur radio participants were able to relay critical information, including an accurate location, as preparations continued. Jones, meanwhile, took advantage of his time with the EMT and other rescuers to talk up amateur radio and explain how to get licensed. Jones was eventually flown to a hospital in Albany, New York, again taking advantage of the occasion to promote amateur radio to the helicopter pilot and crew. Jones is said to be recovering. According to one account, rescuers were having trouble making contact with the helicopter, so Jones loaned them a better antenna he happened to have. Ham radio saved my life last night, Jones said, and I am very thankful for how everyone helped me, Jones said afterward. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. The ARRL has announced that Orlando Hamcation will host the 2021 ARRL National Convention in Orlando, Florida, February 11th through the 14th. With more details on the upcoming National Convention, we go to League Headquarters, where Steve Ford, WB8IMY, files this report. The convention will mark the 75th anniversary of Hamcation, one of the largest ham radio gatherings. The convention theme, Rediscover Radio, is a rallying call for radio amateurs committed to developing knowledge and skills in radio technology and radio communication. The convention will kick off on Thursday, February the 11th, with a series of day-long ARRL training tracks and a convention luncheon at the Doubletree by Hilton Hotel Orlando at SeaWorld. A complete program and list of presenters will be available later this summer, and registration will open in the fall. Hamcation will host the rest of the convention Friday through Sunday, February 12th through 14th, at the Central Florida Fairgrounds and Expo Park in Orlando. Pacificon 2020 has been canceled. Held each October, the event is sponsored by the Mount Diablo Amateur Radio Club and hosts the ARRL Pacific Division Convention. Pacificon Treasurer Jim Simons, W6LK, said, quote, the Pacificon Committee has been hard at work planning Pacificon 2020 each and every day, but COVID-19 really has made the event untenable. We are looking at options to provide some content for the amateur radio community via the web or virtual seminars, unquote. Hamcation is sponsored by the Orlando Amateur Radio Club, an ARRL-affiliated club. Orlando Amateur Radio Club is supported by volunteers from radio clubs throughout the region. This year, an estimated 24,000 people attended the all three days of the event. Details on tickets and information about forums, exhibits, including information for vendors and tailgaters, testing, travel, and preferred hotels with special rates are all on the Hamcation website. Online ticket sales will begin in August. Tickets purchased and postmarks by December 1, 2020 will cost $15 and are valid for all three days. ARRL and Hamcation acknowledges this year's pandemic has introduced uncertainty into any long-term planning. Both organizations will follow all government and health requirements and guidelines as plans are committed for the 2021 event. 
The FCC has dismissed Vivian Huo and Julian Sanz, H&H USA's Chinese U Radio 690 XEWW Tijuana, Mexico's long-pending application to operate from studios in Irwingdale, California, and ordered the station to cease operations within 48 hours. The intent of the application was that the programming would be transmitted from the studio to XEWWAM in Rosarito, Baja California Norte, Mexico, and then broadcast back into the United States. XEWW falls under FCC oversight because its programming was originating from studios in California. The agency stated it dismissed the application because the parties failed to include that Phoenix Radio produced the programming and owned the Irwingdale Studios. Phoenix Radio is partially owned by two entities with Chinese government ownership, Extra Steps Investment Limited and ChinaWise International Limited. The FCC stated Phoenix Radio's known activities at this broadcast programming studios are such that, without reviewing its role as an applicant, the FCC could not evaluate the proposed service. Specifically, the broadcast programming subject to this application is supplied, created, and produced in a studio used, owned, and maintained by Phoenix Radio. Previously operating via special temporary authority, the group sought to deliver a full range of Mandarin Chinese language programming that includes music, entertainment, weather reports, local Los Angeles traffic reports, and local Chinese community news. Prior to the FCC's ruling, the station was exploiting a loophole that allows content produced in the United States to be broadcast from foreign radio towers, such as those in Mexico. Phoenix TV, which is headquartered in California, produced its content domestically and then used the more powerful Mexican station to broadcast across the U.S. border. Huo and Sant, the owners of H&H USA, previously acquired former XEWW operator GLR Southern California and entered into a programming and sales agreement with Phoenix Radio in April 2018. Senator Ted Cruz had announced in April his intent to introduce legislation intended to block the operation of XEWW by Phoenix by forcing the FCC to reject any application that included a language change of a cross-border station. The ARRL Foundation has been awarded $3,000 to the Open Research Institute. The grant will be applied to Phase 1 of the Digital Multiplex Transponder Research and Development Program. The Open Research Institute is an IRS 501c3 organization dedicated to open source research and development in amateur radio. This grant will allow hardware prototypes for broadband microwave digital satellite payload to proceed more rapidly. An independent IRS 501c entity, the ARRL Foundation, administers programs to support the amateur radio community, including scholarships for higher education, award grants for amateur radio projects, and special amateur radio grants for Victor C. Clark Youth Incentive Program and the Jesse A. Bieberman Meritorious Membership Program. The Dayton Amateur Radio Association has appointed Rick Allnut, WS8G, as the general chair for Dayton Hamvention 2021, heading a team of some 750 volunteers. An ARRL life member and a ham since 1982, Allnut, who served as assistant general chair with outgoing general chair Jack Gerbs, WB8SCT, 
has been a Hamvention volunteer for the past decade. Hamvention is very important in my experience of amateur radio, Allnet said. I am honored to serve as the general chair of the Dayton Hamvention. Tapped as assistant general chair is Jim Storms, AB8YK, a past president, vice president, and secretary of the Southwest Ohio DX Association. He has been DARE's vice president and Hamvention advanced registration chair for three years and is co-founder, director, and trip team leader of the Dave Coulter Memorial Youth DX Adventure. The DARA board expressed its gratitude to Gerbs for his service to Hamvention in DARA. The appointments are effective on July 1st. Hamvention 2021 is scheduled to take place May 21st through the 23rd. In response to the global pandemic, Radio Amateurs of Canada is once again offering an online advanced qualification amateur radio course so that individuals can upgrade their qualifications while continuing to practice social and physical distancing. With your advanced certificate, you can run higher power, operate a remotely controlled station, obtain operating privileges when traveling overseas, set up repeaters, be the trustee for club stations, and even become an accredited examiner. In addition to the advanced course, a basic qualification amateur radio course will also once again be conducted with the assistance of the Annapolis Valley Amateur Radio Club of Nova Scotia. We anticipate that the next basic course will start in mid-August and are currently setting up the course. Registration for the basic course is not yet available and we are not keeping a wait list. We will be sending out an RAC bulletin as soon as the information becomes available and also posting it on the Radio Amateurs of Canada website. The online calendar of amateur radio events continues to fill up, even as physical events remain few and far between as a result of the pandemic. In Germany, the DARC has announced that Friday, June 26, kicks off the Ham Radio online event being held in lieu of Ham Radio Friedrichshafen. The DARC and organizers are also making a virtual trade fair available for exhibitors to present their latest products. For those who want to mix workshops with their shopping, the online event will also offer sessions on operating, broadcast technology, and other related subjects. AMSAT is also moving into the online realm later this year. Instead of gathering in Bloomington, Minnesota on October 16th, attendees at the 38th Annual Space Symposium and General Meeting will be participating through a virtual platform. AMSAT will provide additional information as soon as event planners have details available. In the UK, the Convention Committee of the Radio Society of Great Britain has planned an online equivalent of the RSGB convention. As with the in-person event, it will feature an array of speakers. It will be held on Saturday, the 10th of October. We'll bring you more details when they become available. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. QSO Today podcast host Eric Guth, 4Z1UG slash WA6IGR, has announced that the first QSO Today Virtual Ham Expo will take place Saturday and Sunday, August 8th and 9th. Attendance is free to all, registration is open, and there are early bird prizes for registering now. 
built on a live virtual reality platform used by Fortune 500 companies and major universities, the ARRL sanctioned Hamfest will feature a lineup of well-known speakers. Guth and his team, including George Zafropoulos, KJ6VU, have assembled more than 50 of the best ham radio mentors in multiple tracks to address this conference from the Virtual Expo's auditorium. Presenters will include Ward Silver, N0AX on grounding and bonding, Glenn Johnson, W0GJ on de-expeditions, and John Portoon, W6NBC on building slot antennas for antenna-restricted locations. Demonstrations of new amateur radio gear will be presented, and attendees can speak with exhibitors via video and audio or by chat, as well as interact with others online. This platform simulates a full convention experience with an exhibit hall and exhibit booths staffed by live attendants, speaker auditorium, lobby, and lounges, the announcement said. Guth, an ARRL member, decided to go forward with the virtual event after many in-person ham radio conventions were canceled because of the pandemic. ARRL will be among the exhibitors filling the virtual exhibit hall. Attendees will be able to share ideas and network with each other via the virtual platform. Following the 48-hour live event, audio and video from the presentations and resources published by the exhibitors will remain available to registrants on demand for 30 days. Registration is open for the 30th annual ARRL Tapper Digital Communications Conference, which will be a virtual event later this year. For more details on the upcoming conference, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, who files this report. The conference is planned for Friday and Saturday, September 11th and 12th, with activities starting at 1300 UTC and ending at 2130 UTC. Tentative plans call for having 26 half-hour time slots. The plan is for 20-minute talks, followed by a question-and-answer session. An updated speaker schedule will be on the Digital Communications Conference webpage at www.tapr.org forward slash conferences. You can register on this page as well. We will be encouraging talks from all around the world, said Steve Bible, N7HPR of Tapper, who explained that times will be arranged to favor European attendees in their afternoon. Bible said participating speakers may submit a recorded presentation if they wish. We also plan 15-minute slots for shorter topics, such as the lightning talks that we have at the in-person DCC, he added. These shorter slots also provide opportunities for demonstrations of projects and ideas. The digital mode suite WSJTX version 2.2.2 has been released. The update is a bug fix release. The primary change is to incorporate the new Radio Amateurs of Canada Prince Edward Island Section PE into FT8, FT4, MSK144 contest mode for ARRL field day. Operators planning to be on the air for field day should upgrade to this version to enable accurate logging. Another change, the FT8 decoder has been sped up in normal and fast modes. This offers a decoding speed closer to that of version 2.1.2 without compromising the number of decodes. It is particularly targeted for slower, single-board computers such as the Raspberry Pi Model 3 or similar. Also, the DX grid field now clears automatically whenever the DX call field is changed. ARRL continues to solicit paper logs of prominent de-expeditions or logs from stations and operators active from more rare locations from the 1950s through the 1980s for inclusion in the DX log archive endowed by JA1BK. 
The DXLog archive program was created thanks to an endowment established by Kan Mizoguchi, JA1BK, to obtain, preserve, and utilize paper logs from rare and significant de-expeditions. The archive will include pre-1950 paper logs, as well as those from interesting operations, other documents from de-expeditions, and logs kept by longtime residents of rare entities. All logbooks received to date have been inventoried and are housed at ARRL headquarters. Former ARRL Radio Sport and Field Services Manager Dave Patton, NN1N, will manage the program. Patton noted the recent receipt of interesting logs from Hal Turley, W8HC. These included some old logs of Al Hicks, W8AH. Especially significant is the June 1951 7B4QF operation from Andorra, the first amateur radio operation from that country. Hicks was there with Bill Orr, W6SAI, Gus SM5UM, and Mick ON4QF. See Operation Andorra by Bill Orr, W6SAI, in the October 1951 issue of QST. Other W8AH paper logs include the 1951 PX1AR Andorra and 3A2AC Monaco operations. Contact Patton for more information about logs or related DXing ephemera that might be of interest to the DX Log Archive. A new video entitled What is the IARU is now available at the International Amateur Radio Union Region 2 website. This video explains the mission and the roles of IARU to represent, develop, and defend frequencies for amateur radio around the world, IARU Region 2 explains. It also describes regional organizations and the critical roles of its more than 160 member societies. The English language presentation was developed by the IARU Administrative Committee and approved at its meeting last October in Lima, Peru. The short video, available in English and Spanish, was produced by IARU Region 2 Director Carlos Beviglia, LU1BCE, and Fernando Gomez Rojas, LU1ARG. The videos are available in MP4 format. IARU Region 2 encourages member societies and radio clubs to use the videos to explain the role and mission of IARU to amateurs, regulators, and others. Veteran amateur radio on the international radio station volunteer Tony Hutchison, VK5ZAI, has been honored as a member of the Order of Australia in Queen Elizabeth's birthday honors list. Hutchison was recognized for significant service to amateur radio, particularly to satellite and space communication. The Australian government's Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet noted that Hutchison is one of ten official Aris Telebridge stations to the International Space Station, as well as a ham TV ground station. Hutchison's station has served as the ham radio contact point for ISS crew members to speak with schools and groups on Earth via ham radio when a contact location is not within the footprint of an ISS pass. The students connect via a teleconference line from their school to the telebridge station and then with the astronaut using ham radio. Hutchison provided communication support for contacts with Australian astronaut Andy Thomas, VK5JAT slash VK5MIR during Thomas's tour on the Russian Mir space station and he enabled the first school contact with Mir in 1993. 
As part of ARIS, he helped 65 schools prepare for ARIS contacts and use his Telebridge station for 58 ARIS contacts throughout the world. He is a member of AMSAT VK. Tony's been an ARIS mentor for years and was lead of Australia's mentors. ARIS International Secretary Rosalie White, K1STO, said he enjoyed talking to the Mir crews long before. White said that Hutchison, who is in his early 80s, remains involved in the ARIS program. Licensed in 1960, Hutchison became interested in satellite communication in 1965 with Oscar III. Although I received the honor, I would like to share it with all team members I work with, Hutchison said. If it wasn't for the work that all the ARIS International Volunteers do, this award would never have been given. An investiture ceremony is tentatively set for this fall. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Coming up, the answer to the universal question, why does my Wi-Fi suck so bad? And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Nowadays, I have the Wi-Fi router and two more extenders just to attempt to cover my house. With all of this, I still have Wi-Fi problems. All of this is caused by the proliferation of Wi-Fi devices everywhere. TVs, Google Home, Alexa, tablets, phones, smart thermostats, security cameras, garage door openers, light bulbs, etc. The list goes on and on. This is a universal question. Partly because, and you nailed it, we ask more of Wi-Fi now than we ever have before. IoT devices, multiple phones, multiple computers. You might have a dozen or more devices sharing that Wi-Fi access. Uh, I checked myself on my home uh, Wi-Fi network, and I have two networks, one Eero and one Orbi. I have more than 50 devices. Of course, I'm an outlier, but still, people have a lot of Wi-Fi devices now. Then, of course, your neighbor has lots of them too, right? In fact, if you you know look at your Wi-Fi menu, you may be seeing a dozen different access points. Some neighbors are... Uh, are choosing Wi-Fi routers that say, we're super powerful, double, quadruple, MIMO, and they're interfering more with you than they used to. It all adds up to terrible Wi-Fi. Uh, and and it, it does underscore one particular problem that all Wi-Fi has. It's Wi-Fi's polite. If your access point, here's another access point, uh-huh, or another device uh-huh, on the network, it'll shut up, it'll clam up. It'll wait a random amount of time, then start again. And if it hears your neighbor's Wi-Fi on the same channel and the same frequency, it'll shut up again. That's why Wi-Fi is so inconsistent. You might even notice pausing. It's it's terrible for uh, streaming video and, and voice calls. Most streaming video is buffering, so it's not as noticeable. But I have to say, when we do our shows with Skype, we tell all of our contributors and whatever you do, you can't be on Wi-Fi. You have to get a wired network, and that's it, that's for that reason. Uh, when it comes to improving your signal, I'm going to refer you a great article from Ars Technica. 
Jim Salter, who is really a guru of networking, wrote it. It's called The Ars Technica Semi-Scientific Guide to Wi-Fi Access Points. And he recommends him a number of things. I'm not going to go through everything in the article. I would strongly recommend you read it because it's got some great tips for improving Wi-Fi. Tip number one, get a signal meter on your laptop or on your phone. If you have an iPhone, unfortunately, the way Apple works, they don't let third-party apps uh, access the signal strength coming in from the Wi-Fi radio. So iPhones are no good for this. But there are uh, soft, there's programs you could run like NetSpot on your Android device. If you have a laptop, Insider with two S's is really good from metageek.com. So once you get these on a portable device of some kind, laptop is fine, you're going to want to make a map of your Wi-Fi signals. Uh, in fact, there's a there's a Wi-Fi mapping app that I use on Android all the time. Let me let me just quickly check my Android phone because off the top of my head, I it's really handy for getting a sense, making an actual like colored map of all the all the Wi-Fi. It's called Wi-Fi Heat Map. And so, if you have an Android phone, this is a great tool. You walk around your whole house. You'll then have a map with different colors of Wi-Fi. Jim says signal strength. Don't get obsessed about signal strength. Anything better than 67, minus 67 dB is, is, is fine. In fact, you can actually have a, if it's too strong, if that negative number is too low, like minus 10, it can actually overpower your system and make Wi-Fi worse. So minus 67 is normal. Because that's a negative number, remember, anything lower, minus 66, 65, that's better. Anything higher, 68, 69, is worse. 67 is, Jim says, the cutoff point. You can also, in one of these Wi-Fi tools like Insider, see which bands are most congested. There are 11 bands in the U.S. on any given frequency. Really, there's only three because you have the middle band and the surrounding bands uh, that each channel uses up. And there's, of course three different frequencies there's a 2.4 gigahertz frequency and there's two five gigahertz frequencies that wi-fi access points can use it's great once you get a map of everything you'll have a much better understanding of where the trouble spots are in your house but also of which frequencies and channels your devices are using most of your devices can be allowed to pick the channel it's it's really i think an exercise in a futility to try to assign channels the devices will do uh, and the router will do as as good a job as you would maybe better and they may be moving those around from time to time the thing to keep in mind is wi-fi and this is a great analogy i think jim might have come up with this somebody did wi-fi is like a lamp in a room uh you you get a pool of light from a lamp in a room but as you go outside the room that pool of light is weaker go through two doors it's not going to make any difference at all. Wi-Fi is similar to that. A single wall will slow Wi-Fi down. By the time you've got two walls between you and the access point, you've got very little signal coming through. The farther away you get, the slower the service will be to the point where you just don't get any Wi-Fi at all. There's also other obstacles. And the worst obstacle in Wi-Fi is humans. Those big bags of water that are walking around. If Wi-Fi has to go through a human, it's going to attenuate the signal something awful. And you can verify that with your signal meter standing in front of your Wi-Fi access point. Turn your back to it and move the signal meter back and forth. You'll see you really attenuate the signal. That's one reason you want to put your routers, your access points, and your extenders high up. Have them aiming down 
over the heads of humans, not firing through humans. That seems weird, but in fact, that does make a difference. Higher up is better for an access point. Now, he said he's using signal extenders. Those are the old school way of expanding Wi-Fi. You'd have an access point and then you'd buy, you know, Linksys access point from Linksys, some signal extenders. The problem with them is they literally cut your Wi-Fi speed in half. And that's because half the time they're talking back to the main access point, half the time they're talking to your device. That means they can only transmit to your device about half the time, half the speed. That's why we've mostly gone to mesh systems. Mesh systems generally will have a separate back channel for communicating to the main access point. That doesn't impede the speed of the Wi-Fi access. So you get a very much better performance as you're getting farther and farther away from the main unit using those Wi-Fi satellites if you have a mesh system. At home, I have an Eero. I really like Eero. I have Orbi. Orbi's probably the fastest, but not as sophisticated as the Eero. I know mesh systems are more expensive, but using a mesh system will give you a much better result, in my opinion, uh, than using uh, signal extenders. There's the advantage also that you can add uh, satellites to almost all mesh systems at a lower cost you buy an extra satellite so you can extend it as needed and generally uh, as long as you position the satellites within good range of the main unit you're going to be able to boost your wi-fi farther and farther out so that works pretty well there are a lot more tips that jim has about Wi-Fi. I would recommend reading that article in Ars Technica for all of the ins and outs. I don't want to spend a lot of time here. I will give you one more um, a point that might help a lot. Sometimes Wi-Fi just isn't going to make it from this end of the house to that end of the house, uh, in which case you might use a wired solution to expand your Wi-Fi. What? Wired to expand my Wi-Fi? Well, you already have wires in the walls of your house. You have your electrical grid. You also have, probably from your cable television system, you have coaxial cable in the walls. Both of those can be used to extend Wi-Fi. I recommend and I've used the TP-Link uh, home line uh, networking or power line networking devices. They're fairly inexpensive. The way it works is you'll have your Wi-Fi access point, your main router here in, uh, let's say, the living room. By the way, that's one other point Jim mentions is put that as central as possible, obviously, to shorten the distances to the radius instead of the full length of the house. But you've got your centralized Wi-Fi access point. You get one of the little power line adapters, plug it in via Ethernet, then plug it into the wall... And as long as you don't have a junction box in between that plug in the wall and another point in the house, you can plug a receiver into the other end. Now these are connected via physical wires, your electrical wires, and it has either a Wi-Fi access point on it, TP-Link makes those, or another Ethernet jack that you could put into one of the satellites. That's one of the nice things about the old Eero system is you could actually put an Ethernet into the satellites to expand your Wi-Fi. still counts as one system, but uh, it's helped out by the wire in the wall. So that's, uh, that's uh, TP-Link. Others make these power line networking. Uh, they're fairly inexpensive, and that's a really good way to expand your network using wiring in the house. I mentioned cable. The coaxial cable can also be used with a system called Mocha, but uh, you'll need to have a little bit more expensive Mocha adapters. Same idea, though, one on each end that's connected via Ethernet to an access point. So before the, all of this is talks, I'm talking about spending money. Before you spend a lot of money on new gear, it's well worth 
doing an assay of the house and try moving things around a little bit. A couple of things to keep in mind. 2.4 gigahertz is a more crowded band. That's the original Wi-Fi band, but it's the one that goes the farthest. If you're trying to get something outdoors like a doorbell, 2.4 gigahertz is almost always the best choice. 5 gigahertz may work better. It doesn't go through walls as well. But for that reason, there's less interference from neighbors and other Wi-Fi going on in the house. So generally, if you're nearby five gigahertz, uh, an access point or a satellite, five gigahertz is preferable. It's when you're far away that you want to go to 2.4 gigahertz. New gear will always improve uh, your connectivity. There is now a new standard Wi-Fi uh, 6. That's 802.11ax. That has some other features to help solve this problem. Uh, eventually, you're going to get more and more Wi-Fi 6 devices that will be able to take advantage of a Wi-Fi 6 router. So maybe the next time you buy a router, you might want to look at Wi-Fi 6. There's a lot there. It's a difficult challenge. And as any radio engineer will tell you, RF is kind of voodoo science. It's very difficult to figure out where things should be placed. But it, you can off, often improve your signal just by a slight repositioning of the satellites, the access points, and, uh, and of course, your devices. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high-tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. On December 7, 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Less than 24 hours later, the United States was officially at war, and the FCC had issued Order Number 87, which suspended all amateur radio operations in the U.S. and withdrew our frequencies from the amateur service. However, the FCC did recognize that limited amateur operation would be required in connection with domestic civil defense work. Thus, in June 1942, the FCC issued regulations which created the War Emergency Radio Service, or WERS for short. This was not an amateur operation, even though the frequencies used were our former bands at 112 through 116, 224 through 230, and 400 through 401 megacycles. Notice that the 5-meter band, 56 to 60 megacycles, was not included. The FCC apparently sought to limit operations to the UHF frequencies where long-distance skip was impossible. A WERS license was not given to an individual, but rather to a municipality or other local government entity to cover the operation of all such stations engaged in emergency civilian defense communications. Operations could only be conducted upon authorization of the local Civil Defense Corps. Operators in WERS had to be loyal U.S. citizens, with the fingerprints and proof of U.S. citizenship on file with the FCC. They also needed to have an FCC commercial or amateur license or an FCC third-class operating certificate. 
Thus, although most operators were hams, many non-amateurs were active in this service also. Authorized operations in the War Emergency Radio Service were limited to emergencies relating to enemy activity. There was no provision for operations in natural disasters. Practice and training sessions were allowed, and local governments may have used these practice activities to provide needed communications during natural disasters. Technical standards were strict for 1942. The carrier frequency could not deviate more than one-tenth of one percent in the lower half of each band and three-tenths of one percent in the upper half. In the two-and-a-half meter band, this meant that the signal could not vary more than 112 kilocycles at the lower end and 340 kilocycles at the upper end. While this sounds incredibly wide today, remember that in the 1930s and 1940s, almost all UHF transmitters used the modulated oscillator, cheap to build, but not very stable. The only receiver useful with this type of signal was the super regenerative. Power was limited to 25 watts input, which meant about 10 to 15 watts output. By default, two and a half meters became the band of choice for WERS operations. In fact, it came to be known as the Civil Defense Band. The most popular radio in WERS operation was the TR-4 by Abbott Instruments of New York City. The unit measured only 9 inches by 8 inches by 4.5 inches, ran on 6 volts DC or 110 volts AC, had a range up to 75 miles and cost less than $40. Although WERS served a valuable purpose, it did not satisfy the needs of an active amateur suffering under the wartime radio silence. Fortunately, the World War II amateur had it far better than his World War I predecessor. For one thing, amateurs did not have to disassemble their stations and take down their antennas. Contrary to popular belief, the FCC did not ban shortwave listening. AM broadcasting was still allowed, W1AW was authorized to remain on the air, QST was still published, but even with all of this, the restless amateur wanted more. And believe it or not, some hams legally got on the air and had QSOs. How? Wired Wireless. Have you ever heard of it? In summary, Wired Wireless was a carrier current type of operation. A transmitter, usually running 10 to 25 watts output, was inductively coupled to the AC power line. The signal will follow the power lines throughout the city up to a maximum of about 5 miles. Anyone within 300 feet or so of the AC power line would be able to copy the signal. Even though the range was a five-mile radius from the transmitter, the actual radiation distance was only 300 feet from the wires. Thus, it was legal. Amateurs found that carrier current operations worked best in the long-wave spectrum and set up hundreds of stations in the 160 to 200 kilocycle range. Ironically, the 160 to 190 kilocycle segment survives to this day as a legal unlicensed low-power band with 1 watt and 50 foot antennas permitted. Some amateurs experimented with audio frequency induction field communications. This involved no RF. An audio oscillator was coupled to a large inductor. At distances of 2,000 to 3,000 feet away, an audio amp coupled to a similar inductor received the signal. 
QST was active during the war years, running articles on secret communications and ciphers, the latest 112 megacycle WERS equipment, visual signaling including the semaphore alphabet, a course in radio fundamentals, a multi-part series in cryptanalysis, and the Japanese Morris Telegraph Code with notes on the Japanese language. Towards the end of the war, QST ran several articles on post-war amateur allocations. Two columns focused on amateurs serving in the armed forces, in the service and hams in combat. And, as a grim reminder of the horrors of war, the column Gold Stars listed those amateurs who made the ultimate sacrifice. In our next installment, we will look at amateur life in the post-war world. As a postscript, the ARRL has asked that the 160 through 190 kilohertz band be reallocated to amateur use. Will the ghosts of the World War II operators be listening as we once again activate that band with CQs? You decide. The vintage SAQ Alex Anderson alternator in Grimton, Sweden, will conduct its annual Alex Anderson Day transmission on 17.2 kHz on Sunday, July 5th. Startup and tuning will begin at 0830 UTC, with the transmission commencing at 0900 UTC. Startup and tuning for the second transmission will begin at 1130 UTC, with the message transmission at 1200 UTC. Both events will be broadcast live via the Alex Anderson Association SA-Cube YouTube channel, QSO via the reception report form. Amateur radio station SK6SAQ will operate on 7.035 and 14.035 MHz CW and on 3.755 MHz SSB. Send reception reports via email. Two stations will be on the air most of the time. Due to the pandemic, no visitors will be allowed into the radio station. More details are on the Alex Anderson Association website. Because some of the most important things have had to say to one another can often happen when they're not on the air, two national radio organizations are looking for help in getting the word out about their print and online publications. Maybe you can help. The NRRL, Norway's amateur national radio organization, is in search of an editor to oversee its member magazine, Bladet Amateur Radio, which publishes six times a year. A notice posted online said the magazine, which is published in the Norwegian language, is considered a cornerstone of the league and a major benefit of league membership. The editor will be responsible for planning and production as well as collaboration on content. Application deadline is September 1st. Interested amateurs can direct their questions at nrrl at nrrl.no. Questions can also be directed to the current editor at bulletin at nrrl.no. In Australia, the Wireless Institute of Australia is looking for candidates to take over the helm at AR Magazine, which is not published since its January edition. The position of editor-in-chief has remained vacant since editor-in-chief Harry, BK6YBZ, resigned for health reasons. The Wireless Institute of Australia is looking for members who can assist with editorial or proofreading skills. Interested candidates can email the AR Publications Group, secretary at the secretary, at wia.org.au. In other print news, the Radio Amateur Society of Australia has launched an e-magazine and named it QTC, after the Q code for I Have a Message for You. The downloadable publication will be available every two months, featuring columns on dealing with QRM and RFI in the shack, 
and a how-to regular feature on getting started in the different aspects of ham radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. This is the ARRL Propagation Forecast for Friday, June 26th. The sun has returned to its spotless ways, so the solar flux index has dipped down to about 69. There may be a blast of solar wind arriving this weekend, but it shouldn't cause much disruption to the HF bands for field day. On VHF and UHF, 6 meters is likely to be the go-to band for field day, since sporadic E-band openings are still popping up almost every day. However, Hams in western Oregon, northern California, and those operating in a zone from Mississippi northeast through Virginia should be on the lookout for tropoducting on 2 meters and up for the next several days. And now with this week's satellite update, here's Bruce Page, KK5DO. Recently, there has been talk on the AMSAT bulletin board about having a HEO, or high earth orbit satellite again. The benefits are that you can talk for an extended period of time hours, and the satellite footprint is usually about one-third of the Earth at a time, if not more. Of course, it would be great to once again have an AO-10, AO-13, or AO-40 type satellite. AMSAT is looking to accomplish this in the Gulf series of satellites. The goal is to start with a LEO, advance to a MEO, or medium Earth orbit, and then a HEO. The reason for the steps is that the days of getting a launch for free or close to it, is gone. Very few launch providers want to take up space with a freeloader. The Gulf series of satellites will be three U CubeSats, have deployable solar panels, three access attitude control, software-defined radios, work on VHF and UHF, and ultimately C-band, which is 5.6 gigahertz for the uplink, and X-band, 10 gigahertz for the downlink. This mode is sometimes referred to as five and dime. You would have a ground station that uses a small antenna and a digital receiver unlike the large antennas that were used for the previous HEO satellites. Each Gulf satellite will incorporate a little bit more of the project until we have the HEO satellite that can be launched at a reasonable cost. This is Bruce Page, KK5DO. Foundations of Amateur Radio the day came to pass when all my setup and configuration was going to culminate in the moment of truth when I enabled TX on my whisper mode station. Before I tell you of my experience, I should give you a little bit of background. A few weeks ago, I managed to erect a HF vertical at my home, or QTH. That, in and of itself, was newsworthy. Well, at least to me it was since it was the first time since I became licensed in 2010 that I had actual real all-band HF capability at home. Last weekend I ran some RG6, yes, 72-ohm quad-shield load-loss coaxial cable from my antenna through the roof into my shack. I was thrilled. Immediately set about getting my HF station up and running. 
This involved installing WSJTX, a tool that allows you to do weak signal work, perfect for when you're a low power or QRP station like me. I've previously reported using Whisper, weak signal propagation reporter on a Raspberry Pi and a dongle, but this time I was using my Yaesu FT-857D. Reports were coming in thick and fast, managed to hear stations on all the bands I'm allowed on, 80 meters, 40 meters, 15 meters, 10 meters, 2 meters and 70 centimeters. Managed to make it report online and update the various maps around the place. Brilliant! Now I wanted to do the next thing. Transmit and see who could hear me and how far my beautiful call sign might travel on 5 watts. So after some abortive attempts, I configured the levels correctly, made sure that my antenna coupler and SG-237 was tuned, and hit Enable TX on the screen of my computer. Dutifully, my computer did what was expected, turned on the transmitter, and happily made the fan run on my radio for two minutes at a time. I tried 80 metres, 40 metres, and 15 metres, all worked swimmingly. Then I looked on the map to see who had heard me. Nobody. Nothing. Nada. Nietz and Niemont. I could hear November 8 Victor India Mike using 5 watts, 18,649 kilometres away. But nobody could hear me. Not even the station Victor Kilo 6 Charlie Quebec, who is 9 kilometres from me. So what's going on? Turns out that I'm not using a, quote, standard, quote, call sign. That's right. My Victor Kilo 6 Foxtrot Lima Alpha Bravo authorised by the World Radio Communication Conference 2003, implemented by the Australian regulator, the ACMA, in 2005, and issued to me in 2010, isn't a standard call sign. Seems that the deal-breaker is the four-letter suffix, Foxtrot Lima Alpha Bravo, that's killing my attempts at making contact. Now, I know that there are moves underway, not quite sure what stage they're at, to allow Australian amateurs to apply for any three-letter suffix, and keep that regardless of their licence level. But that, to me, doesn't really solve the underlying issue, where a perfectly legal call sign isn't allowed to be used by one of the most popular modes today. I've lodged a bug report on the WSJTX mailing list, but to accommodate this call sign will probably require a fundamental change in the way the Whisper mode and likely several other JT modes will work. Not to mention the databases, the maps, API calls and other fun things like logging. Technically, I could have figured this out back in September 2019 when I was first allowed to use digital modes with my license. But I didn't have an antenna then. In case you're wondering, I also investigated using a so-called extended or type 2 message but that allows for an add-on prefix that can be up to three alphanumeric characters or an add-on suffix that can be a single letter or one or two digits. I could use something like Victor Kilo 6 Foxtrot Lima Alpha Stroke Bravo, but I'm sure that the owner of Victor Kilo 6 Foxtrot Lima Alpha would be upset, and using Victor Kilo 6 Stroke Foxtrot Zero Lima Alpha Bravo might have a French amateur yell merde at me when they spot their call sign being transmitted from VK6. One suggestion was to upgrade my license. What's the fun in that? I'm on a Victor Kilo 6 Foxtrot Lima Alpha Bravo. Forty years ago, on July 30th, 1980, the Republic of Vanuatu gained its independence. 
France and the UK claimed parts of the archipelago, and in 1906 they agreed on a framework for jointly managing it as the New Hebrides. In celebration of the 40th anniversary of independence, all three members of the Vanuatu Amateur Radio Society will operate special event station YJ40IND during the month of July. Activity will be according to the individual operators' schedules, but is expected to occur mostly during the late afternoons and evenings, 0600 to 1000 UTC. A greater emphasis will be made over weekends and on their Independence Day, which is July 30th. Operators should look for activity on 40, 20, and 15 meters where propagation is expected. On FT8, normal, or as the Fox, will be Rod, YJ8RN. On SSB will be Estelle Din, YJ8ED, stepdaughter of the late VARS president, YJ8PE. On CW, listen for Colin, YJ8CW. Operators will be running 100 watts. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. I got this question by email, which deals with the subject I prefer to avoid, tower guy wires. This is not one that can be easily or properly covered in a four-minute radio segment. I suggest you refer to the many fine publications available on the Internet and from organizations like the ARL on the subject. I do not own a guide tower, all of mine are freestanding, but I work on commercial guide towers. If you have the right climbing hardware, a ride down the guy wires can be lots of fun, too. Don't tell anybody I said that, please. If your ham tower is guide but is designed to be freestanding and you have to replace the guy wires, here's a simple guideline for the procedure to replace them. First of all, if available, check any literature or web pages about wind loading and guy wire strength. I suppose thicker is better, but heavier guys droop and look bad. So the best bet is to accurately add up all the wind loads for your hardware on your tower and the tower itself. Then use that to select the proper gauge guy wires. On a small home tower, you can fudge the mount point of the guy wires at the tower by a couple of inches. So fabricate another tower anchor for your guys and simply install the new ones right above the old ones. Check for tightness and strength before removing the old wires. I would let the two systems coexist as neighbors for a period of time to stretch the new wires before the old ones are removed. After the break-in period, I paint seal the turnbuckles and other guide wire adjustment points to watch for broken seals and hence slipping guy system mounts. A good seal for guy wire hardware is regular old fingernail polish. I use that stuff for lots of electronic projects from color coding network wires and coax runs to guy anchors and sealing pots. Just a little hint, the best time to buy fingernail polish for color coding is around and after Halloween. That's when all the weird oddball colors like black and orange are in stores. You may need to reseal turnbuckles and bolts as the fingernail polish shrinks and fades with time. 
As with any tower project, strength is of utmost importance. Always design and build for far worse weather than you can anticipate in your area. Over time, all mechanical systems weaken. So prepare for this effect by designing in extra strength and some degree of flexibility. Also keep in mind that during the change of seasons, the size of metal objects change like nuts and bolts. So a trip up the tower early in the winter and summer to check for damage and tight bolts and nuts is always time well spent. As with any tower work, money spent on climbing books and videos is well worth it. You should review your safety climbing materials every year, just like your recertified as a Skywarn spotter. Do this for yourself. Remember to place safety ahead of everything in all your tower work. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. A balloon launched on May 20th by Amateur Radio Roundtable web show host Tom Medlin, W5KUB, and team has begun its third circumnavigation of Earth. The balloon, at 43,000 to 45,000 feet, completed its second trip around the globe on June 19th. It crossed the Atlantic Ocean in record time at a speed of about 170 miles per hour, the balloon website reported this week. The balloon, identified as W5KUB-18, carries APRS and WSPR amateur radio payloads. As of the afternoon of June 23rd, it was heading over Uzbekistan at over 100 miles per hour. As the balloon website states, the mission and goal are to launch a high-altitude balloon for long duration and multiple trips around the world. The balloon, an SBS-13, is capable of flying up to 45,000 feet. It will be filled with hydrogen to obtain higher altitude, the website explains. It will be solar-powered only, no batteries, so it will only transmit during daylight. We will receive tracking every 10 minutes via whisper on HF at 14.0971 MHz. Tracking transmissions will be turned off over the UK, Yemen, and North Korea due to regulations. The homebrew tracking transmitter runs just 10 milliwatts, but Medlin told ARRL it's been heard as far away as 9,000 miles. The entire tracker with GPS and processor is only 2 grams, Medlin said. That's about the weight of a penny. The entire payload is only 15 grams total. The current effort is the group's ninth attempt to circumnavigate the globe. Medlin says the balloon project has broadened his horizons. You have to do a lot of specific engineering and measurements down to the one-tenth of a gram to fly one, he told ARRL. You also become a weatherman, watching all the NOAA websites, winds at different altitudes, storms, etc. Storms will bring you down, Medlin said. With the float altitude set at 44,000 feet, he expects to be able to fly above most storms. You also become very well versed in geography as it flies, he added. Medlin's live-streamed amateur radio roundtable goes live on Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time and accepts calls from viewers. The show is simulcast on HF at 5.130 MHz. He has operated a live webcam at Dayton Hamvention for several years. It's been a great experience, and hams around the world are having a great time, Medlin attested. I even issue them a certificate for being part of the experience. Many young people are watching and getting involved, and teachers who teach STEM are contacting me to get information and help. We are having fun. Summer has arrived in many parts of the world, and with that, a lot of humidity. So what happens when water molecules interact with metal surfaces? The result is nothing short of electric. So say researchers at Tel Aviv University, who've just completed a study into how the atmosphere's water vapor might just provide a renewable energy source. SOTA enthusiasts and other portable radio operators, are you listening? 
The study from the university's Porter School of the Environment and Earth Sciences, published recently in Nature Scientific Reports, pursued the evolution of electricity in thunderstorms, noting how it morphs from vapor to droplets to ice and eventually spurs formation of the electricity we know as lightning. The researchers used a small, low-voltage battery to determine voltage buildup between two discrete metal surfaces and found that when the environmental humidity dropped below 60%, so did the voltage. With humidity able to charge surfaces to as high as 1 volt, researcher Colin Price says he believes this process could eventually help develop batteries that could be recharged using water vapor in the air, provided the humidity is a very tropical 60% or higher. Virginia Air and Space Center Executive Director and CEO Robert Griesmeer has advised that the center's amateur radio station exhibit will be discontinued effective July 1st when the center in Hampton, Virginia reopens. VASC is the official visitor center for NASA's Langley, Virginia facility. We have been told to be out of the VASC by June 30th, Griesmeer said. Currently, we are in the process of finding a new home for the station's equipment. Thanks to all who supported KE4ZXW during the last 25 years, especially the volunteer operators who manned the station during that time. To the many visitors we have met and school groups that have stopped by and talked with us about ham radio, communications, satellites, and STEM program-related subjects, thank you. The KE4ZXW display station was shut down on March 13th. A main feature of the exhibit was the ability to communicate with amateur radio satellites and with the International Space Station. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Members of the Military Auxiliary Radio System will conduct an HF skills exercise July 20th through the 24th to hone their operating skills and messaging handling capabilities. Mars members will be reaching out to the amateur radio community via the 60 meters Channel 1 net, 5330.5 kHz, twice a day, the Saturn HF net on 14.265 MHz, and by contacting various stations via HF Link throughout the exercise. Mars members will be requesting assistance with collecting county status information as well as airport weather information, called METARS. Mars members will also be passing ICS-213 messages to numerous Department of Defense, Federal, and Amateur Radio addressees. This exercise will be announced via WWV at 0010 and via WWVH at 0050 starting on or about July 13th. WWV and WWVH listeners will be asked to take an online listener survey. This HF radio training event will not impact regular communications. Illinois Section Manager Ron Morgan, AD9I, has stepped down due to health concerns that became apparent just as he was ready to start a new term. 
he was re-elected in the spring section manager election cycle. Morgan of East Peoria has been section manager since February 2017. Thomas Beebe, W9RY of Marion, has been appointed as the Illinois section manager effective July 1st to fulfill the two-year term that extends through June 30th, 2022. ARRL Radio Sport and Field Services Manager Bart Jonke, W9JJ, made the appointment after consulting with ARRL Central Division Director Kermit Carlson, W9XA. BB was one of three candidates who ran for the post in the spring section manager election. He currently serves as an assistant section manager, office emergency station, and a field instructor and field examiner. Members of the Military Auxiliary Radio System will conduct an HF skills exercise July 20th through the 24th to hone their operating skills and messaging handling capabilities. Mars members will be reaching out to the amateur radio community via the 60 meters Channel 1 net, 5330.5 kHz, twice a day, the Saturn HF net on 14.265 MHz, and by contacting various stations via HF link throughout the exercise. Mars members will be requesting assistance with collecting county status information as well as airport weather information called METARS. Mars members will also be passing ICS-213 messages to numerous Department of Defense, Federal, and Amateur Radio addressees. This exercise will be announced via WWV at 0010 and via WWVH at 0050 starting on or about July 13th. WWV and WWVH listeners will be asked to take an online listener survey. This HF radio training event will not impact regular communications. I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. Before we go, I have a humorous piece about Field Day, an annual event that many of you will have missed by the time you hear this. It's a short commentary from 1988 written and voiced by broadcaster Chuck Bullitt, W-A-1-A-E-K. Uh, here we are. The last weekend in June. You know, I revere this weekend, Field Day. I've held this weekend in such high regard for years now on my social calendar that I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Wish I could say the same for my wife. You should have been here the year the weekend of all weekends of Hamden accidentally coincided with her honeymoon. That was a woeful year for me, but well, it was worth it, though. Hey, I've decided that this is going to be different. Field Day 88 is going to be humdinger. I've got everything all set here. I've already bought the local sporting goods com complete supply of mosquito repellent. I still say that here in these parts, mosquitoes and black flies should be given the honorary title of state bird, though. After all, some of them easily weigh in more than the current holder of that title. That's the chickadee, a real small bird. And you know what? It seems that the biggest and best of these little nasty mosquitoes and black flies only come out on field day weekend. Field day, huh? 24 to 30 grueling hours of scratching those bug bites. And just as many hours of scratching my head trying to figure out just why this antenna won't tune the way it did when I put it together three weeks before. 
Which brings to mind an interesting point. Why didn't I double-check the feed line and the antenna before coming out to this bug-and-critter-infested swamp? I guess I really wasn't as prepared as I'd hoped to be. Forgot to restock that first aid kit, too, after that accident I had last month. No bandages and tape, and I just cut myself. And boy, wait a minute. What if this had been the real thing? Maybe it wasn't as prepared as I thought it was. Just wait till next year, though. I'm going to have a checklist. That's what I need. And maybe more than one, too. Maybe one for camping supplies. Maybe one for tools. One for the radio gear. Maybe even a departure list for the station wagon. Yes, I never really considered what it really takes to be ready for that next big hurricane or tropical storm or any emergency. And what about all the other local ham bones around here? How come they're not out here with me scratching away? Maybe we'd have like a call-up telephone tree. You know, I call Phil, Phil calls Nate and Davis, and Nate and Davis each call two other operators. You know, we could have a real contingent out here in no time. Why didn't I think of that before? Now, what about this antenna? Oh, yeah. Maybe, I uh, suppose it does work better when you plug the coax connector into the tuner. Whew, that was simple enough. Now, where did I put that bug spray? Ouch. Oh, this is Chuck Bullitt, WB1AEK, reporting from Murphy Swamp, Animals Crossing, deep within the wilds of Maine. Uh, CQ Field Day? CQ Field Day? Members of the Military Auxiliary Radio System will conduct an HF Skills exercise July 20th through the 24th to hone their operating skills and messaging handling capabilities. Mars members will be reaching out to the amateur radio community via the 60 meters Channel 1 net, 5330.5 kHz, twice a day, the Saturn HF net on 14.265 MHz, and by contacting various stations via HF link throughout the exercise. Mars members will be requesting assistance with collecting county status information as well as airport weather information called METARS. Mars members will also be passing ICS-213 messages to numerous Department of Defense, Federal, and Amateur Radio addressees. This exercise will be announced via WWV at 0010 and via WWVH at 0050 starting on or about July 13th. WWV and WWVH listeners will be asked to take an online listener survey. This HF radio training event will not impact regular communications. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. And finally, a bit of humor this week. For years, it has been believed that electric bulbs emitted light. However, recent information from Bell Labs has proven otherwise. Electric bulbs don't emit light. They suck dark. Thus, they now call these bulbs dark suckers. The dark sucker theory, according to a spokesman from the labs, proves the existence of dark, that dark has mass heavier than that of light, and that dark is faster than light. 
The basis of the dark sucker theory is that electric bulbs suck dark. Take, for example, the dark suckers in the room where you are. There is less dark right next to them than there is elsewhere. The larger the dark sucker, the greater its capacity to suck dark. Dark suckers in a parking lot have a much greater capacity than the ones in this room. As with all things, dark suckers don't last forever. Once they are full of dark, they can no longer suck. This is proven by the black spot on a full dark sucker. A new candle has a white wick. You will notice that after the first use, the wick turns black, representing all the dark which has been sucked into it. If you hold a pencil next to the wick of an operating candle, the tip will turn black because it got in the path of the dark flowing into the candle. Unfortunately, these primitive dark suckers have a very limited range. There are also portable dark suckers. The bulbs in these can't handle all of the dark by themselves and must be aided by a dark storage unit. When the dark storage unit is full, it must be either emptied or replaced before the portable dark sucker can operate again. Dark has mass. When dark goes into a dark sucker, friction from this mass generates heat. Thus, it is not wise to touch an operating dark sucker. Candles present a special problem, as the dark must travel in the solid wick instead of through glass. This generates a great amount of heat. Thus, it can be very dangerous to touch an operating candle. Dark is also heavier than light. If you swim deeper and deeper, you notice it gets darker and darker. When you reach a depth of approximately 50 feet, you are in total darkness. This is because the heavier dark sinks to the bottom of the lake and the lighter light floats to the top. The immense power of dark can be utilized to a man's advantage. We can collect the dark that is settled to the bottom of lakes and push it through turbines, which generates electricity and helps push it to the ocean where it may be safely stored. Prior to turbines, it was much more difficult to get dark from rivers and lakes to the ocean. The Indians recognized this problem and tried to solve it. When on a river in a canoe traveling in the same direction as the flow of dark, they paddled slowly, so as not to stop the flow of dark. But when they traveled against the flow of dark, they paddled quickly, so as to help push the dark along its way. Finally, we must prove that dark is faster than light. If you stand in an illuminated room in front of a closed dark closet, then slowly open the door, you would see the light slowly enter the closet. But, since the dark is so fast, you would not be able to see the dark leave the closet. In conclusion, Bell Labs stated that dark suckers make all our lives much easier. So, the next time you look at an electric light bulb, remember that it is indeed a dark sucker. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like our flagship repeater, W2GBO, on 146.940 MHz, serving the Tri-Cities of New York State's Capital Region. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.